Thank you, Jessica. Well done. Well, good morning. Good to see everybody in the house of the Lord this morning to celebrate the birth of Christ and to be reminded of the reason for the season. And uh, you're welcome for the Christmas gift that you're sitting on. Merry Christmas. And it's to New Covenant Fellowship from New Covenant Fellowship. So congratulations to yourselves for providing this wonderful Christmas gift. And I did sit in one this morning and they're pretty uh, firm cushions. I'm sure you noticed that when you sat down expecting to sink down to the bottom and you stayed afloat. So I also noticed uh, that um, there's a bar that's a little lower on the chair in front of you. So if you don't pester the person in front of you too much, you can actually kind of put your feet on that bar there. I noticed that. That's pretty neat. Maybe wipe the mud off of them or something. But it's a, it's been a long time coming uh, to have new chairs. This is not just our sanctuary. It's our fellowship hall. It's everything. It's the, it's the building that God has provided for us. And we do the best we can with it. But we eat in it. And the carpet gets spilled on. And the chairs get spilled on. And I don't know that there was a single chair that was clean out of all the chairs that we had. Um, and praise the Lord, they're still being recycled and they have been donated to another church. Uh, not, not a way Baptist, is that right? Not a way Baptist. So the Lord is still using them. Um, God is good, but we're just so blessed to have those new chairs. Not that I get to sit in them, but I have one up here, so that's good too. Um, we are, as you know, deep into the Christmas season and we're counting down the days I've met Several people throughout the week that'll say seven more days till Christmas or five more days to Christmas. So today is Sunday. So uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, so three days. You want to count the full day before we get to wake up. Hopefully some of us, most of us to gifts under the tree. We celebrate on the actual day, the birth of Christ. Now, right now, today, we are still in the Advent season. We're still in the in the waiting season. Um, not only do we celebrate the birth of Christ by kind of remembering this or re-celebrating the actual day he was born. We do that every year. But we also remember and kind of re-celebrate the waiting period, the Advent. And that's very important. Christ wasn't just born. He didn't just show up out of nowhere. There was a lot of preparation work that took place in order to make the birth of Christ so celebratory and so special. And so I'm actually going to look at a passage this morning, since we're still in the Advent season, that concentrates more on the build-up to the big day, the build-up to the Christmas story. It's the story before the story, and it helps us, I think, appreciate the Christmas story even more. And to continue to anticipate what God has done and what God will continue to do because of his great plan of redemption. The anticipation is a part of it. Perhaps there's some here that really are not into celebrating the birth of Christ or remembering it. And I know there are many out in the world that don't care that much. Uh, there, there's not, it doesn't bring a joy over them. It's not a big celebration to them. And I would just say that the way that we can most or be the most cheerful or joyful or excited about the birth of Christ as we re-celebrate it 
is when we know how much we needed the Savior to come. Is we know how much we needed a Messiah. If, if, if you know how sick you are, if you really feel how broken things are, how disoriented, we, we know how empty we feel and, and how hungry we are and how long, lonely we are for the spiritual world. And then we hear that He's coming, that God is doing something to meet those longings, then we're going to be excited, very excited. But if we don't think that we need these kind of things, then why would I be excited about an announcement of somebody's birth? But when we know how sick we are, the gospel tells us many times, draws conclusions that we don't draw for ourselves, and that is we are dead in sin. And as a result of that, what we really deserve is a wrath of God. But what we get is this beautiful, precious gift, God incarnate, in the form of a baby and a human. It's just God's grace and God's grace. So if you had an incurable disease and then all of a sudden you found you're just kind of waiting your days or your years out. But then you heard there was a cure for it and that the doctor was going to show up in three days at your door to administer this this remedy. How excited would you be? That's exactly what you need in your life. So we can be excited about Christmas and celebrating the birth of Christ the more we know how much we need the Messiah to come, forgive us for our sins, and enable us to live our new lives as new creations in Christ. That's why I'm excited to celebrate Christmas every year. Because I know what God has done for me. And that's all part of the waiting. Now the Old Testament saints, they knew how to wait too. A lot of their... Life, their lives as believers was waiting for God. Now, God was still moving and acting in the background. He was bringing things to fruition, but not everything just comes like we're used to in our culture. You push a button on your computer or your screen or whatever, and we just can get things really quick. But waiting is actually an important part of our lives because it builds. You can't have a climax without a wait. It builds things, it plays. So the Old Testament saints, they knew this. They also, of course, were waiting. We're re-celebrating, but they were waiting for the birth of Christ. And so all the things that came before that kind of sets the stage for the birth. And I want to turn to one of my favorite Gospels. There's four. Right now it's my favorite. Um, and it's a Gospel we haven't been in for a while. I'm teasing. It's actually the Gospel of Matthew. It's probably in the bulletin, isn't it? It's already in the bulletin. We're going to go back to chapter 1 in the Gospel of Matthew. There are four Gospels. Only two really tell the Christmas story. Now, John, his idea of the Christmas story is the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's pretty much it. That's his Christmas story. Uh, Mark doesn't really tell a Christmas story. He talks about John the Baptist. Then next thing you know, there's Jesus, a grown man on the scene. Matthew and Luke are the Gospels that have given us primarily the Christmas story. Luke actually is the best account. It's the most details. You have the juicy details about how the angels visited Mary and Joseph and all of these things that go into it. Matthew's Christmas story is a little uh, more brief. But Matthew's gospel 
is the only one that gives a story before the story. In Matthew's gospel, we find an anticipation and a build that enables something has to happen before the Christ, the birth of Christ, in order for us to truly understand the birth of Christ. And only Matthew's gospel does that for us. And of all things, he does it through a section of scripture that we know of as the begats. And it's often the sections of scriptures we, we read the Old Testament. You get to those points where it's such and such begat such and such who begat such and such who begat. And your eyes start to go all over and you're like, whew, there's, there's nothing in here for me. Let me just skip over this or, or go ahead and fall asleep one or the other. Because that's what it has a tendency to do. But I think that we will find in Matthew's account, there are treasures here. There are nuggets here for us to apply to our own lives. And that will help us celebrate Christ and worship Christ. Because it's the story before the story or the anticipation of the story. I want to read 17 verses that Matthew put before he begins his Christmas story. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shatiel, and Shatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Iliad, and Iliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Nathan, and Nathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And I'm just going to read a little part of verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So you see, this is his introduction to the birth of Jesus Christ. It's the anticipatory aspect of it. You can't get to verse 18 without traveling through and do the hard work of the first 17 verses. And in these verses, I want to highlight three things I see that will help prepare us to celebrate 
the birth of Christ. The first is uh, truth realized. Now, I've entitled this sermon, uh, It's Getting Real People. It's just kind of a cultural thing that you hear people say. That's an idiom that we have. When you're getting close to things, things are starting to build. They're starting to get in place for the actual event. Sometimes you hear somebody say, it's getting real, people. Or in this season, we'll say, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. And we say that because you put this decoration up, and then you get a few gifts, you got a few things wrapped, there's a few things under the tree. It's not Christmas yet, but it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. And there's a sense in which... This passage is like Matthew saying, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. All of these things are starting to line up in place for the birth of Jesus Christ. And the first thing that we get out of this passage is that Jesus is in the books. Jesus has a record. Jesus is rooted. The birth of Christ is rooted in history. Now, notice as grand as this story is, the story of Christ. Matthew doesn't begin his gospel or his account with the words, once upon a time, far, far, or long, long ago, and far, far away, there was a little baby. And he doesn't start like that, as magnificent as this story is, unmatched, because that's not how Jesus has his beginnings. He has real parents. He has real grandparents. And so he begins the preparation for the Christmas story through a genealogy. A record. A very important record. That was like in that day and age. Well, in this day and age, you have to have proof of things to get anywhere in life. And this was their proof of their identity. It's getting real. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. He doesn't start with once upon a time. It's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. Now, it's not that myths or fairy tales are wrong. As a matter of fact, we often can't get enough of them, right? Uh, We've read countless books, timeless books with, with powerful stories that draw us in. Uh, This day and age, it's more movies or TV video related. We can't get enough of stories about real, about make-believe heroes, right? Like Hercules or Robin Hood uh, or Beauty and the Beast, uh, King Arthur and the Round Table. All these stories have just lured people in throughout the ages. And we're in a season with, uh, with the movies where we keep reaching back into the past and just rehashing and rehashing anything to do with superheroes, anything to do with overcomers. All these stories about them. And we love them. I remember the Lord of the Rings. uh, I just was totally absorbed in the books. And then they came out with the movies, which, which were even better in a sense, because they lasted forever and they just drew them out way too long. And it turned like one book into five movies. And I loved it. But these are things that we long for. We read about somebody who the the weak can become strong. And and there is somebody out there that can save me from this predicament that I am. And fix the broken world. Somebody against all odds can come out of nowhere. And give me hope and make this world right or make my life right. We read this in books and, and we see it in movies. 
And we're so inspired by it because it really does give us hope. It speaks to a longing that we have, I think, in our spirits, in our hearts. And so we go back to these kind of things. It's about good overcoming evil. It's, it's about the person that's getting bullied finally being able to stand up for themselves. Or the person that's being abused or devalued finally gets up on the platform that they deserve. And, and, and uh, this hero takes vengeance on enemies. And even though these kind of stories aren't true, we absolutely love them and go back for more because there's something about them that is true. And it's what our hearts long for. And we look at the characters and they're silly, but, but we love the story because these silly characters or make-believe characters or the superheroes with capes, they embody truth. They embody the truth that the weak can become strong. They embody the truth that some, someday, maybe somewhere, someone will come out of nowhere and fix all this stuff. Take up for me. Somebody, or, or love, the, the romance is where love wins. Love wins. And we hang on to these truths because they give us hope. The idea that our lives will one day be restored or one day be enjoyable. I remember, to, sh to show you my age, the first Rocky movie. Like I said, we just it's a good thing you keep rehashing it and making money off of it. But the first one, I think I was in middle school, junior high or something like that. The theater was packed. This is before DVDs and stuff. You had to wait for movies to actually come to the theater. But anyway, so we're in there. It's packed. Mostly young people. Rocky won. And let me just tell you, people were absorbed with that movie. And when it was over and Rocky pounded Apollo, he came out of nowhere and getting hit was only good for him kind of thing. It just made him meaner and stronger. And he beats against all odds. The whole theater stood up and was cheering and clapping. This is a movie theater. That's a flat screen. It was as if they were like around the ring. You know, and they were caught up in the inspiration that it gives us hope. I was caught up in it. I was cheering and clapping because it gives us hope that, man, that, that the underdogs can come out on top. It, it can happen. These things can happen. So it gives great hope. The thing about it is you walk out of there, you're pumped, you're inspired. But for the most part, it might last 30 minutes. Uh, maybe a couple hours, you might get a couple days out of it. It might even inspire you to think, man, that's what I want to do with my life. I want to be that person that can overcome everybody. And you go to the gym and you start pumping. And after a couple days, that bag of potato chips just is too tempting. And ow, this hurts. Ow. So, you know, it's it, but it's lofty and it's fun to think about these things. And they really do inspire us. But the problem with it is they don't last because... Once you walk out of that theater or, theater or you close the final page of the book, you're back in real life. And you know what happens in real life. Real life is that nobody has the self-control to do that. Nobody has the discipline to be that. Nobody can endure that much pain for others. And even in this life, if you, if you are self-controlled and you are disciplined and you're a pretty good person and you give your life and you serve others, that doesn't mean you're a hero. 
You might be the one that suffers the most in this world. Sometimes it's the wicked people that prosper from the eyes of the world. And the good people, well, the good die young sometimes. There's no guarantee that if you are a cut above, that it means your life is easy or that you're always going to be able to do good. Because the world has a way of just pushing us down and squashing those dreams and those desires. And I think that's one of the reasons they're so important to us. We love this idea. There's something out there that's going to make it right. Something out there is going gonna, is gonna to appreciate me for who I am, for what I am. Somebody's going to hear my cry. And they're going to overcome. We come to the Christmas story. Now, the Christmas story is one of those stories, depending on where you're coming from, if you're a person of faith or maybe not a person of faith. Not a person of faith. It's another great story. You hear about baby Jesus, but he has superpowers. This is looking good, this story. He has superpowers and he starts to overcome all all odds and he heals people from terrible diseases. He, He brings people back to life. Great story. Inspirational. He walks on water. He calms storms. Then he dies and you think it's a terrible ending. But then he rises from the dead. And we're inspired by this. But it can be another story that we throw into the realm. And people do this. We throw it into the realm of the make-believe. It's nice to believe and we can be inspired by the morals of it and so forth. But that's not the world I live in. And then you have Matthew's gospel about the Christmas story. And he says, no, this is the world you live in. This baby Jesus is real flesh and blood. And he has supernatural powers, but he's real. And he came into this world. And he, he broke through the light, through the darkness. He has parents. He has grandparents. He has great, great, great grandpappy. He's real. All of this was in preparation for him to come. He has a historical record. It is truth realizes what you're seeing when you read this story. And what he is doing with his powers are really happening. He's overcoming evil by his good. He did walk out of the tomb. He did walk on water. He is restoring lives. The process has begun and it continues. And this isn't something that's just going to wear off in 30 minutes or three days. Because it is initiated by a powerful living God with a plan of redemption who is removing the curse as we sing in our Christmas songs. Far as the curse removed, he is doing this. And so people in faith can be incredibly inspired to celebrate the birth of Christ because what he set into motion is still in motion and we are a part of it. We're recipients of the heroic superpowers of God Almighty to overcome the sin in our life, to give those that are blind sight to see that he is the Messiah. And the stories and the myths and the fairy tales, really, they have a purpose. But all of those fine, all of the longings of our hearts and all of the little inspirations, the make-believes, Embody truth, and they really all point to the archetype of Christ. Because the fact of the matter is, this is what's happening. He is conquering evil. All of those things that we long for are fulfilled 
in the person of Jesus Christ. And those that have wasted their lives can have second chances, can be welcomed in. The ideal of goodness and peace is real. It's happening because of baby Jesus and his plan. He's the real prince that our daughters dream about coming in and sweeping them off their feet one day. Or, Or the real soldier or warrior that our sons dream about fighting beside and being victorious in battle. All of that finds its fulfillment in Christ because he conquers everything bad and evil. So the genealogy says this is real. It's not a make-believe. It is real. And then second, we find promises realized. In verse 1, you'll notice that Matthew says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And if you read your Old Testament, you'll remember, that's right. Back in the first book of the Bible, God came to Abraham, appeared to him, and he made a promise to him. He entered into a covenant with this guy called Abraham. He even changed, or Abram, even changed his name to Abraham, the father of many. And back in chapter 22 of Genesis, he says to him, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Every nation that covers this globe will be blessed because of your offspring. And it was a promise God made to him. Now in Luke's Christmas story, which is much more detailed, chapter 1, we find uh, that's where pregnant Mary visits her cousin, pregnant Elizabeth. She's pregnant with John, and of course Mary's pregnant with Jesus. And something stirs in the womb because it's a, a big dynamic spiritual thing happening with these births. And then Mary breaks forth in praise and the magnificent. But one of the things she says in this, in Luke chapter 1, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And in this praise that she breaks out, she realizes that this is a fulfillment of a promise that God made to Abraham generations and generations ago. It's a promise, and it took a long time to fulfill it, but this is a promise realized. This is a promise fulfilled. And so another part of the Christmas message isn't that it's just truth realized, but it means promises are fulfilled. It means that God makes promises and he keeps them. It also means that there's a strong likelihood that God's promise may not happen when you'd like it to happen, Or in the way you'd like it to happen. But he never breaks a promise. Every promise in Holy Scripture. It will be fulfilled. And that's what we want to concentrate on. Is what happens if we're not careful. Like many of the Jews did. Is they hear the promise. And they begin to imagine what it's going to look like fleshed out. And so they hear the promise of the Messiah coming 
and establishing his kingdom. And they see the Messiah as this tremendous military figure, heroic figure, who's going to come. He's got big muscles. He's got a big sword. He's going to cut down the enemies. Now he's going to free us. He's going to rally us. We're going to be behind him fighting flesh and blood as well. He's going to free us from the bondage of the Romans. No more taxes. No more stealing our crops and taking our hard work. We are free. He's the king that will do all this for us. And he's going to reestablish us. And so they they worked their minds to try to figure out how God will fulfill this promise. And they were so far off or so uh, focused on the, their so-called fulfillment of the promise that they didn't even recognize the person of God when he showed up. We can do that, too. We can get so focused on the details or how it's going to work. And there's people that do it. We read it all the time. Prophecy. They, they got it all figured out. They're so focused on that, instead of putting their faith in the person of Christ and following him, he'll take us where we need to go. It's okay to dabble in these other things and to try to figure them out, not to be ignorant of them. But we want to keep our faith in Christ because we could be wrong in how we think he's going to fulfill a promise and when. And really in scripture, very seldom does he fulfill it when and in the way that we would have imagined or guessed. The virgin birth, Mary, born in a manger, the king. We want to keep our faith in Christ, but we also want to realize we don't want to do what, if you want a good Christmas, put your faith in Christ and don't do what Abraham did. Because of the promise that God made to him, he sees time ticking. He sees himself and his wife getting older and older. He and God has not given them the child that he's promised them. Can't have any offspring without a child, right? So he takes matters into his own hands. Hmm. God either forgot or he just needs a little help or something. And he takes a concubine and gives birth. And what is the result? Disaster. It's not a good home life for a while. It's disaster. And sometimes we get impatient. And we take matters into our own hands. And if we do that, it's disaster. Some form. Jacob and Esau. God promised the older will serve the younger. You're the younger. That's the promise. Jacob didn't want to wait. I want my blessing now. So he dresses up as Esau, comes before his blind father with the goat hair and said, that's got to be Esau, as hairy as that hand is. And he gives Jacob the blessing. What happened? Disaster. So really, there's a lesson in here for us as we long and put our faith in the person of Christ. And we know that every promise that he has made will be fulfilled. We want to be careful and not trying to help God fulfill it through manipulations. Because if we do disaster in some shape or form very well may follow. You think, well, what what does that mean to me in my life? Well, a few examples. Let's say parents. You know, with Scripture gives us uh, really practical truths on how to raise our children up in the admonition of the Lord. We pray for them and we try to instill truth for them and discipline plays a part in all that. But then we sometimes don't get the results that we want, you're not turning out like I thought you should turn out. So we start to coerce and manipulate. Maybe send on guilt trips. 
Maybe make up rules that aren't even in the scriptures and kind of keep our children under our fingers or thumbs so that we get what we want instead of trusting in God's tools and in God's grace. We take matters into our own hands. And you might think, well, I'm glad I'm not in that example because I'm single. I'm not even married. I don't have any kids. But even in relationships, remember you wanted a certain friend or you wanted to be in a certain relationship or you already know who you're going to marry. The problem is they don't know it yet. And so and, and you're not getting any feedback. So you take matters into your own hands instead of trusting in the Lord and you begin to manipulate that person and and, and guilt that person and and sh- cry the woes so that they have to feel sorry for you and you create circumstances where that you have to be in each other's lives. It doesn't have a good outcome. And those are just two examples of how we can take matters into our own hands. Keep our faith on the person of Christ. And be careful. His promises are not always when or in the form. That's why seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. And then lastly, grace realized. So a genealogy in that day is a record book. And it's extremely important for those that had a genealogy. And it was kind of like, not just a, a legal record, but maybe it worked like our resumes would work today. When you do a resume, if you're coached in how to do a resume, you're instructed, only include the things that make you look the best. Or, if you did something that wasn't really impressive, word it in such a way where hopefully it's still true, but you word it in such a way where it makes you look really impressive, of course, because you want that job. Well, they kind of uh, sometimes, in the history shows, where some people wanting to look special, wanting to look dynamic or a, a win or a catch, they tampered with their genealogies. Because, you know, hey, if I got somebody famous in my genealogy, I may have never even met them. But I'm related to them. We got blood. That makes me special. King Herod, it was reported, and he messed with his genealogy so much, taking, taking the, the, the bad characters out that he didn't want to be related to and putting some good characters in that he wasn't related to to make himself look good. The genealogies kind of work that way. You know, if you, you went to SVCC for two years, maybe three years, but you graduated from Yale. Put just, I graduated from Yale on the resume. Don't mention the other stuff that you did to get there. Make yourself look good. So then we come to the genealogy of Christ. And there are some things in there that if you knew anything about genealogies, will immediately get your attention. So let's look at these things. First of all, there are women in Jesus' genealogy. And it's not unheard of, but very seldom when you find genealogies, women aren't listed because in that culture, they didn't have any status. It, it wasn't, it didn't get you anywhere to have women in your genealogy. What did they do? You know, they, they weren't known for anything particular. It was, it was absolutely no perk whatsoever to have a person of no status or low status in your genealogy. And there's five women listed just in this section of Scripture. And then, not only do we have women, but some of those women are Gentile women. And this is a Jewish genealogy. Gentiles 
That doesn't sit well with Jewish people. It's the pure line that is important. So you have a Moabite in there. These are enemies of Israel. So you have women, but then you have enemies of Israel. Moabites um, and Canaanites. Tamar was a Canaanite and Ruth was a Moabite. So it's, it's a racial offense to have this in somebody's genealogy according to Jewish thought. And then on top of that, we have moral outcasts. Moral outcasts. Rahab, she's a prostitute. That's what you want on your background, right? Tamar, in order to secure her inheritance, her heritage, committed incest with Judah. I mean, this is the stuff you don't want to read about. You don't want to be reminded of father twins that are in the genealogy. Then we have David. And notice how Matthew introduces in this genealogy that's supposed to impress. Notice how he states David. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Ooh, ouch. Had to put it in there like that. All these reminders of the bloodline. All these reminders of people in here. That's not a good reflection. Uriah's wife, in other words, you know the story. He lusted after Uriah's wife. and and, And everything about that is just as bad as it can be. Uriah is one of the mighty men. Like countless times, he put his life on the line for King David. That was just the kind of person he was. He was that loyal. He was that noble. And when David tried to get him, uh, then David tries to, to get him killed in the battlefield. He's so noble, he won't leave his men. If they're on the field, I'm going to be on the field. I mean, it's just getting worse and worse. Finally, he has him killed. He doesn't just commit adultery. He has this loyal friend, the kind of guy that every king would want. He has him killed to get what his wicked heart wants. That's how Solomon came onto the picture. And it's right there in the genealogy. The death of a noble guy. He takes his wife. You know, technically speaking based on these sins that were committed according to Deuteronomy and and Leviticus, these kind of people aren't even allowed into the presence of God. These are the kind of people that are cut off and and kicked out of the presence of God. And here they are in this genealogy. What is Matthew doing by including people in the, the family of God? that do not deserve to be in the family of God. Pointing out, you know, the Jews would probably say, King David, that's who I want in my genealogy, and then, but the wife of Uriah. Why the dirt? Well, because even though they don't deserve it, and there are people that deserve to be cut off from God, they're still in the presence of God, and they're still in the family of God. Because even... The tainted genealogy of Christ drips with grace. I mean, you read this and you realize there are people there that don't deserve it. As a matter of fact, they deserve just the opposite. And there they are in the family of God, being loved by God, being used by God. I mean, look who's 
in the genealogy. And today we might say, look who's at the table of fellowship. Look who's at the Christmas dinner table. Seated around Christ. People that don't deserve it one bit. And the record of Christ and the life of Christ reminds us that it's not our genealogy. It's not our record of goodness or accomplishments. It's Christ's record. Because he did what we could not do. He lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He was the hero. And he died the death that we could not die. He took all the sins upon himself. The gospel is how God blesses Christ. He blesses us through Christ. And he gives this gift of a grace in abundance. So as we think about this Christmas season and we, we give gifts and we receive gifts. But most importantly, we celebrate the birth of Christ. Remember that He is exactly what we need. He is all-sufficient. And all of our true needs and our true longings can be and are being fulfilled in Christ, not because of what we do or don't do, but because of His promise. We are a blessed people. Who here deserves what they have? If you're honest and look at your life. Scripture would tell us no one. And so we have a lot to celebrate this Wednesday on Christmas Day. May God be glorified to preach in His Word.